So please turn with me to first or Second Timothy, chapter three, as we continue our journey through this book. Second Timothy, chapter three. Chapter three kind of has a um, of one extreme and then the other extreme in the second half of the book, and so. I look forward to preaching on both of these as we look at people that we ought to avoid because of their untruth and then the truth from Scripture represented in the the second half of chapter 3. So before we come to this half of chapter 3, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Our Lord Jesus, we're thankful for your word. We are continually, continually blessed by the truth therein, even in those times when we are more dismissive of your truth, um, when we are seeking out our own wisdom and our own answers, you still change us, you still work on us, you still love us. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning, that you would cut through our sin, that you would convict us of it, and that you would lead us to your truth, the truth contained in your word, Teach us how we ought to be as a church and as individuals. Um, We pray that you would be glorified through what you teach us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so for this morning, uh, I thought it would be a good idea to introduce our passage through looking at another passage in Scripture. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7 should be a very familiar story. It's one of those um, flannel board stories, if you will. We all remember the flannel board stories. Um, This was one of my favorites because it involved lots of different kinds of animals. And, And this is the story of the plagues in Egypt. And this is how it started. It was right here in chapter 7. And so I want to read these first 11 verses of this chapter to kind of introduce our text today. And I think it will be very helpful for us. And so let's look together at this. Exodus 7, verses 1 through 11. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, bring my hosts, my children, or my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, and they And they did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh, and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then the Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. 
for each man cast down his staff, and they became servants. Then Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And so, <clears throat> fascinating story. I've always been uh, in love with those stories of Moses and Pharaoh and how the Lord overcame the people of Egypt. Um, God equips them with a staff as they go in. They're instructed to relay God's message, which is, let my people go. And he equips them with a staff that miraculously turns into a serpent when it's thrown on the ground. And the idea here is that anytime Scripture tells us about some sort of miraculous event like this, the purpose behind that event is to usher in some sort of revelation of God. God is telling us something different. And here, God is communicating through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh that he should let the people of Israel go. They are his people, and he is their God. However, what is he also doing at the same time? He says, I am hardening the heart of Pharaoh, and he will not listen. He's not going to get it, no matter what. Why? Well, if you look at verse 5, what does it say? So that Egypt will know that he is God and that he is going to protect his people. Moses and Aaron do that. And Pharaoh then recruits his own magicians since he has, he has compared God's miracle basically to a magic trick at this point, And they are able to reproduce it. In fact, if you keep reading, they are also able to reproduce the next two plagues. The, the Nile River turning into blood and the plague of frogs. They're able to produce frogs. They were able to replicate truth with falsehood. This happens a lot, doesn't it? Replicating truth with falsehood. Something that looks so much like the truth that we can often get confused. I think we see this with political issues, with the scientific issues, and more importantly, and a much more dangerous, we see this with issues of Scripture. Scripture has long been used as a source of truth and comfort because it is the very words of God, and it should be that to us. But on the other hand, there have always been those who would use the truth of Scripture for their own prosperity and their own gain. I mean, in relatively recent history, in the last 40 years or so, we've seen folks like Jim Jones and David Koresh do this, take Scripture and bend it to such a way to manipulate large groups of people, even leading them to their own deaths. Lots of people. We see it with Mormonism, with Jehovah's Witnesses, who veil the truth under their own versions of God's Word. They take the truth and they distort it. We see it with prosperity preachers who drain the wealth of their congregations so they can have wealth, all in the name of faith. And so this, we see this replicating the truth with falsehood quite a bit. And so how do we combat this? Well, I think this week we're going to look at this principle here in the text. Paul tells us to avoid such people, is what he tells us. And so next week we're going to focus... On God's word is the ultimate tool in that battle, but for this week, I think it's helpful for us to understand how this falsehood comes to us, what it looks like, and then how we can avoid it. And so with that, we'll consider three ideas in the text today. Who are such people? How do such people behave? And how do we then avoid them? And so with that, let's look at the text, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-9. through 9. Let's stand together as we read from God's Word. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdening are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So remember last week, we looked at this idea from chapter 2 of speaking life rather than death to others, a comparison between what the text called irreverent babble and those who are approved as workers of God. And so when we begin this week, we look at the very first word of the text from chapter 3, but understand this. We understand that the word but means uh, this, this apart going like a, a change, a counter into what we've just learned. And so let's hear this flowing all together. Start with me at uh, chapter 2, verse 24. And I'm going to read this through 3.1. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, or able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So what's going on? It's possible that through the preaching of the word, it's possible that through our gentle correction, through our gentle leading of people, that there will be some who will repent and who will follow after Jesus. But understand this, in the last times, in the last days, this is not going to be an easy thing. Again, understand that there is a battle for truth happening, very much like what's happening there in Pharaoh's court which is a very physical battle going on. The believer comes with their truth. The unbeliever comes with their version of the truth. And then there's a standoff. Paul qualifies this difficulty that come in the last day with the different types of people that will exist in the last days and the different characteristics of people that will exist. Let's face it. If an argument only exists on paper... It's easy to deconstruct, right? If, we, if I read something, I read an article or whatever, a book, and I read it and I think this is garbage, I can deconstruct it really quickly. It's nothing. I can write pages on how to deconstruct arguments of an atheist or an agnostic. 
against some sort of pagan religion. You can unravel it with just a few questions. But when you put people behind those arguments, when you put a face with that argument, you're not just dealing with falsehood, but you're dealing with the souls of men and women. There's a lot at stake. It's a battle for the souls of the lost. And so now that we know that, who are we up against? Who are such people? Look with me at verses 3 through 5. And he goes through, or really it's 2 through 5. He goes through this long list. And I'm going to actually just kind of work through some of these, just some of these as we go. People will be lovers of self. I mean, this kind of sums all of it up, right? That they are lovers of self. They... They're violating the very first commandment of God, that you are loved to the Lord your God alone, that there is no other gods before Him. And so this idea of self-love or self-esteem as it's been gift-wrapped and hopefully tried to be sold to us is an idea that puts self on the throne, God in a position of submission to us, as if that were possible. It makes God in our own image, which of course is no God at all the creation of an idol, which is something that we aren't to do. So I think this idea of lovers of self really encapsulates all of it, and it goes on. Lovers of money, again, another God, not the true God. Proud, boastful of one's own accomplishments rather than that of of their true God. Arrogant, very much in the same vein, seeing one's ability as more valuable than it is. Abusive, the literally, the word here is blasphemer, a slanderer, disobedient to parents. I love that Paul threw this in here as, as seemingly among all these other bad words. And I think it actually should really cause our ears to, poke, to perk up, especially those of us here who are still under the roof of our parents. Uh, the children here should see that disobedience to parents is just the same as lovers of self and proud and abusive and treacherous and ungrateful and all these other words that Paul uses. It's a very important thing. Parents are the source of truth and authority in the home according to the God-ordained establishment of the family. And so to disobey mom and dad is to disobey God himself and to deny the truth. You should hear that. Ungrateful, forgetting where the blessing comes from. Unholy. Complete disregard for what is sacred. Heartless, forgetting how we should treat others. Unappeasable. Disregard for forgiveness that has been offered to us. I mean, we could go on. Slanderous. Just a, just a liar is the word there. The, word, the Greek word there is diablo or devil. Without self-control. Powerless to control one's base desires. Brutal. It's the word savage. I mean, this, these, these words pretty much speak for themselves. We could go on and on here, right? Consider the last on the list here. And I think this is the most telling. Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. This is really a picture of all of them as a denial of the truth about God and being a lover of self, meaning that they parade themselves as lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but they do not have the power 
of the Holy Spirit working in them. They do not have anything that they claim. They do not have anything. They, they're not able to back up any of it. Much like Jesus called the Pharisees. What did he call them? He called them whitewashed tombs. They were painted over with white, but inside was decrepit and dead. Clean on the outside, full of death in the middle. Paul says about these people, avoid such people. Who are these people? And so we need to recognize first that before Christ we were these people. We were 100% lovers of self with no hope of turning by ourselves. We, were, we embodied the essence of the world in every single way. We served self rather than God served our own desires rather than desires of God. And so, before Jesus Christ, these words were perfect descriptors of us. And so, as believers, the Holy Spirit then has changed us and is changing us. The old self, the self that is wants to be a lover of self and lover of money and all these things, is at war then with the presence of the Spirit in our lives. Which is why we're getting better, thanks be to God. The Spirit wins. He sees the work through to completion, even despite our best efforts to make it hard on Him. He is going to see His work completed, thankfully. But we struggle. Sometimes we don't want to avoid folks like this. Rather, we seek to become like this. Because we actually think it's a better idea. So we have to see our own sin in the midst of this before we can at all deal with it outside of us. After we realize that we're capable of being this again, then we are more capable of seeing it in others, which requires discernment and more than one person, the wisdom of more than one person. Consider the context that Paul is writing to Timothy in. He has given instructions concerning the church. And he's expecting Timothy to encounter these types of individuals inside the church. We know that the church is full of individuals who are not of the true church, but are at the church for whatever personal reason that they may have to do that. And so we have to understand that as we come to this. There are some who go to church to be a lover of money or to be arrogant or abusive or to be treacherous or reckless for whatever reason. There are some who show up to parade their false godliness in order to earn the favor of men rather than God because for whatever reason, church is sometimes an easy place to do that. We know what this looks like, so we have to be careful then, brothers and sisters, when we call this out. Because what do we want to do this in when we, when we have to say something? We want to do so with a spirit of love and admonition. Remember, the goal is reconciliation, not condemnation. There's only one that can do that, and it's not us. And so if we think that the person is an unbeliever, what do we do? What's the words we give them? The gospel. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. If we think they're a believer, then what do we do? We call them to repentance. We use the method that Jesus gave us in Matthew 18. We, we go to them personally and, and attempt to talk to them. We bring another brother or sister with us. We bring the whole church with us. Again, this is a, this is a very 
ordered thing that we should be doing. And when he says avoid such people, we avoid them in that we don't fellowship with them or share the burden of ministry with them, but we don't avoid them in that we should always offer them love and forgiveness, lest we become like them. And so we have to be careful. Again, let's remember that our goal in the church is to preach the name of Jesus Christ, to know him, to make him known. Even if though even those who don't fit into these categories or even when they do fit into these categories, we offer love and forgiveness to all, even each other, as we struggle with this. When they are hardened against that, just like Pharaoh was, when they are hardened against that, we avoid them. They're only a snare to us, and they will bring us down. So we have to be careful in the church. This is, this is the devil's work. He can't destroy the church from without, so he will attempt to do so from within. And so we have to be careful. And so next, how do such people behave? Verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passion, passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Johns and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. I mean, you kind of get the snake oil salesman, not, not to pardon the pun there, we get that vibe, right? Except this was a much more harmful thing than selling a bottle like rubbing alcohol or whatever they sold back then. Praying on weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions. To give you an example of what what he's talking about here, what sort of text the the person or what sort of person the text is talking about, uh, could be a man or a woman. Really, he uses a woman. Think about the woman at the well in John chapter four that Jesus meets. This is a woman that was very vulnerable, the Samaritan woman. She was involved in several relationships outside of marriage. Jesus called her on it. She was fortunate enough to have her Savior come to her and tell her the truth, and she was converted. Remember, she went into the city and told them about her Savior. But consider another situation very similar where a person has a shameful past and a possible shameful present and is intimidated by the church, so something like this might be attractive to them, right? This idea of artificial godliness the appearance of godliness without actually having it. Maybe they renounce some of their old ways. I'm going to stop smoking, drinking, and cussing. And I'll go to church every time the doors open. And I'll give money to the youth group. I mean, we've, we've all heard these kinds of things before, right? In this part of the country, smoking, drinking, and cussing is kind of analogous to bad people. So when they say they're not going to do those things anymore, hey, well, they're obviously converted. Yet the gospel is tinted with the sins that they still allow. In our culture, if someone doesn't cuss, says, yes, ma'am, and they go to church on Sundays, again, we kind of look at them and say, well, nobody's going to doubt their faith, right? Even when they choose to live with their girlfriend outside of marriage, no one's going to doubt their faith because, well, we shouldn't judge others. They might say to someone who asks about their relationship, 
a politician that believes abortion is wrong and marriage is between a man and a woman, but also believes that all faith leads to, lead to God, Muslim, Jews, and Christians, we easily let him slide, right? Because he's able to produce the snake just like the truth was. He's able to throw his staff on the ground. It became a snake, just like the magicians did in Exodus. Those folks who lead double lives, I mean, one at the church, one at home, they can do enough tricks to make us believe, make anyone believe. Why? Because they've been tricked. They've bought the Kool-Aid. They believe that their works have somehow saved them, and they've picked out the works that are just good enough to save them, whatever they are, whatever form that takes, and whatever culture they're in, and they've earned a seat with Jesus because they're a good person. I heard those words from a student this week. Well, don't you think that they're a good person? What does that have to do with anything? But Jesus will look at them, and what will he say in the last day? I never knew you. Away from me, workers of lawlessness. I mean, understand how important the truth is here. We have to get this. The lie will sneak in so cleverly that we don't even recognize it. And when it's here, it's going to seem like it's always been here. And it's so accepted that it takes a complete upending to remove it oftentimes. It happened 500 years ago just that way, did it not? It's called the Reformation. It changed the world. This is what needs to happen in our church today, unfortunately. Too many like Johns and Jambres have snuck in and robbed the church of its truth. And in the same swipe, its reputation as well. The church is no longer a bastion for the truth in the world of chaos, but it's become part of the mess. Because it's chosen to build its house upon sand rather than the rock that is Jesus Christ. And so we need to hear this. We're not standing here pointing fingers, but we need to be part of the solution. If we're not, we're part of the problem. And so we, how can we do this? It's something we should pray, brothers and sisters, as churches, as a church and as individuals. What can we do? when it comes to standing up for the truth. Well, Paul does command us to avoid such people. It's actually the only command in this text. And so how do we do that? How do we avoid such people? We become so familiar with the truth that we recognize anything that runs counter to it. And I know you've heard that before, but I cannot stress that enough. That we have to become so familiar with the truth of Scripture what it teaches, what it's about, from, from Genesis to Revelation, that anything that runs counter to it should bug us. We unashamedly preach the whole counsel of God, and we stand behind it, the whole counsel of God. We take in wisdom from others that are doing the same thing. I mean, we have to understand that the road is narrow. It's not wide at all. When we find others who uphold the truth of Scripture, what should we do then? We should cling to them. I've been to Europe, and I went to England and Wales and the small churches over there. They all had a sign out front that said Baptist or Methodist or something. But the individuals in those churches, the six and eight in each church, they weren't concerned at all about that. When any one church had a baptism... Every single church came 
to celebrate that. They clung to one another because they saw themselves as the truth. That's what we have to do. When we see other believers, other churches that are standing behind the truth, we have to cling to one another. This is We're doing this together. We're not in competition for souls. We're in competition against the evil one for souls. This is a walk that we have to do together. When you think about every monster story ever written, what does the monster try to do to the good guys in order to beat them? He tries to separate them. We have to stay together if we're going to do this. When we join hand with others in the faith, we are insurmountable because we have the truth of Jesus Christ. We preach the gospel, which is that Jesus Christ came to earth to save his people from their sins. And in doing so, he took upon themselves or himself their sins and gave to them his righteousness. He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. We preach that unashamedly. He is not dead, but he is alive right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people even as we speak. He will come again and he will take his people home. This is the message we must preach every single Sunday. The message must remind us that not only are we vulnerable to attack and need a Savior, but it reminds us also that we're capable of being the attacker and we need forgiveness. It reminds us that we don't deserve being protected or being forgiven, but He's going to do that anyway because He loves us. That's the message that the church needs. It's the message that the world needs. In conclusion... Turn with me back to Exodus. I don't want to leave the story where we left it. Exodus chapter 8, 16 through 19. Where we left it, it seemed like perhaps Pharaoh had an answer to Moses and Aaron's God. And he was going to be able to replicate the tricks. Look at Exodus chapter 8, 16 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it might, or so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord God had said. To me, this is a comfort. Because the facade can only be kept up for so long. The truth will absolutely, 100%, win out in the end. And I think that's a comfort to us as believers, but it also should be a warning to us as believers too, because if we're faking it, guess what? The truth is going to win out. You'll eventually be shown as a fake. But guess what? Don't lose heart, because there's mercy and there's hope. Call upon the name of Jesus. If you're holding on to the truth, recognize two things. We're not indestructible. We are not indestructible. Lies can seep in the smallest cracks in our faith. I have seen pastors of really good megachurches go down on really 
simple lies. We really have to be on guard because even the best of us have cracks all over us. And so what do we do? We rely on Jesus for our comfort and our truth. He is our source of truth. He is our protector. We should trust in him. And I think we have to understand, too, that we are capable of evil. We're capable of bad. We could just as easily be the ones spreading lies. So we should pray for mercy. Pray for grace that we would not do that. Pray that the Lord would keep us humble. Seek accountability. Seek out men and women who will keep you in line. And be the one who keeps others in line as well. We need each other in this regard. And so in the end, let's do what Paul has told us to do. Avoid such people. Cling to the truth. Cling to Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we are thankful that when we open your word, it is the truth. There can be no doubt. Because oftentimes when we open our mouths, there is doubt. Because we are sinful, we are prone to wander away. We are prone to seek out ourselves and to love ourselves and to love money and to love anything but you. But Lord, you are good to us. You are changing us even now. You are at the right hand of the Father interceding for us even now. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us grow your church that we would be a bastion for truth, that we would be a city on a hill. Our light could not be hidden because we are preaching the light of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Give us strength and wisdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen.